All right, praise the Lord. Uh, thank you so much again for joining us. And before we get into the message, I have a brief announcement for Malawi Missions, and then I'm going to actually call up the team to come up here um, and so that we can pray for the team. We're about to leave in about a week, so we are getting very close. But um, if you don't know yet, we're going to be going to Malawi this summer for summer missions. Um, if you want to find out more about the missions trip and partner with us, here's a very handy pamphlet in your bulletin. Just grab it, hold on to it. You'll find out exactly what we're going to be doing. Uh, there's even a schedule here, a full schedule. If you can get a magnifying glass, you can see. Um, but you're going to see what we're doing on what day. Um, there's even a way to support the team over here, mainly through prayer. You can also give finances if you'd like. And then here's some information about the team members. So please just hold on to this and please partner with us this year. Um, and with that, uh, I wanted to invite up the Malawi team because we are literally about to leave in six days. So we're going to be flying from LAX going all the way to Dubai on Saturday, July 6th, and then from Dubai to Nairobi, and then from Nairobi to Malawi, and we're going to be watching a lot of movies <laughs> together. But, but come on up. Uh, I think they're all right here, a lot of them. But come on up. And I wanted to introduce who the team members are. Praise God. I'm not sure if everyone could make it today. I think Haney can. Is she working? Yeah, yeah, she's working. So one person is not here, uh, Haney, who is working. She's an RN, and she's busy at work. Um, but this is our team. Uh, so praise God. So Brother Richard, Brother Luke, Stephen, Sammy just made the cutoff for 18, just turned 18. Woo! And then Brother Chris and then Nate. Brother Nate, your brother too. So <laughs> but praise God. But uh, please join me as we pray. And then, of course, Sister Haney, she is also part of the team, and then we have a whole other side, uh, PAF and other churches are involved, and then we also have the Malawi side. So there are a lot of people involved, but let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you so much, Father, for your glory and for your grace. Thank you so much that, Father, you have called us as a church, and yes, we up here, we're the ones actually going, but the entire church is going in spirit. And I pray and ask, Father God, that as we get ready, there is only a week left, that you would, Father, mightily work, that you would begin to pour out your spirit upon this team, that you would unite us. Father God, we want to pray also for the other half of this team, uh, the PAF uh, staff and the other churches involved and the Malawi staff. And I pray and ask, oh God, that you would unite us as one, that you would anoint everybody involved by your Holy Spirit. And also, Father God, I pray that you would draw many in this church in fact, everyone to partner with us, mainly through prayer, that they would, Father, be in prayer the entire two weeks that we are out there. So please, Lord God, I pray that you would, Father, cover us by your spirit, protect us. Father, all the traveling and all the, the different places we're going to go, Father, encountering different people, please protect the team. And I pray and ask also for spiritual fruit and your glory upon the entire missions, that everything that we do, it is for your glory. We do it so that people would know you and have a revelation of Jesus Christ so that some may be saved. So, Lord God, I pray for that. And finally, Lord Jesus, I pray for unity, that we would do it all together as one. So thank you so much, Father God. And, Father, we are just so excited. Father God, please bless this missions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, praise God. Thank you. Thank you, team. I forgot to mention I'm going to, so <laughs> I'm on that team. Okay, praise God. Open up your Bibles to Revelation 2, 18 through 29, and we'll get into the Word of God. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. It's been a very eye-opening study for me personally, going through Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. But we're looking at Revelation 2, verse 18, all the way to 29. If you're joining us in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us in person, it'll be online or on your screen at home. Okay, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, 
and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you all the glory, and we thank you so much, Father, that you are with us. And Lord Jesus, truly, you are the head of this church. Again, thank you so much for everything that you are calling us to do this summer, especially as we go to Malawi. Please be with us. Please do your mighty works there. And Father God, be with us here also. Father, every time we gather, you are here, and you are speaking. So please, Lord God, open our hearts to receive from you today. Father God, have freedom. Father, do whatever you please, because that is what we want. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, praise the Lord. We are still in the seven letters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus is still standing in the midst of our church. And he is still ministering to the church. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know it has a lot of weird imagery on the end times, but it is really about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is what it reveals about Jesus right now. Before he returns, he is in the midst of his church. Amen? So even here right now in this church, he is right here in the midst, and he is continuously reaching out and ministering to his church. And I think understanding this reality alone, I know I've repeated it every Sunday, but if we could just wrap our heads around this truth alone, that would completely change our experience of what church is. See, going to a theater to watch someone on screen is one thing. But going to a premiere to actually meet that person, that's a whole other thing. Amen? I don't know if that's an amen. I remember back when I was a college student um, in Westwood, we were walking through that little town, and there was a premiere happening. And I remember we saw Luke Perry. And I remember when I saw him and our friends saw him, something happened inside of me. I'm not one to get starstruck, but I was like, oh, it's Luke Perry. And imagine, right, Jesus Christ. Luke Perry has nothing on Jesus. Is that right? Yeah, Luke Perry has nothing on Jesus. But imagine that Jesus Christ is here every time we gather, every time we are here as the body of Christ, you can actually encounter him. You can actually hear him speak to you. He can minister to you. Jesus is here. And so I don't think that's the mindset that a lot of church people have when they go to service, when they go to church. But how does he minister to us? What is one way that he reaches out? Well, through his word. He is constantly speaking. So when you look at the seven letters in Revelation, this is what he's doing. But he is speaking to his church. He is ministering to them through these letters. But through these letters, he's encouraging them, correcting them, warning them, reminding them of his promises. And these seven letters, they're not just historic letters to a bunch of historic churches. But they are to all churches through all time. But I believe that the number seven is significant because in that area, I'm sure there were more than seven churches. But when John wrote this letter, or Jesus wrote it through John, I should say, and it got sent out, he chose to send it to just seven churches, significant churches. And I think the reason why is because the number seven is a number of completion. So what's the meaning behind that? I believe that the seven churches are a complete representation of all churches through all time. I believe that these seven churches are a complete representation of the biggest issues that all churches will face throughout time. So what am I saying? These letters are personal. You can actually read them as personal letters to you, to our church. So even in our church, at different seasons, at different times, Jesus will speak to us through these letters. Even right now, even as I've been studying these letters every week, I know Jesus is speaking certain things to me and to this church. But these are personal 
letters. Amen? That is an amen. So with that, uh, let's look at the next letter that Jesus sent out through John. But today we're going to look at Jesus' fourth letter to the church at Thyatira. So we're looking at the fourth letter now. And the church at Thyatira was facing deception. Last week I said the compromised church at Pergamum was the most similar to evangelical churches today. That word evangelical, it used to mean Bible-believing churches that believe in the correct things, that are true churches. I know that gets watered down now. But I believe that the Pergamum church is the most similar to evangelical churches today. Well, the church at Thyatira is the next step down. If you're ever wondering, okay, if this is where the church is at today in America, then what's the next step? Where are we headed? I believe if nothing changes, we are headed towards Thyatira. If the church at Pergamum has stage two cancer, the church at Thyatira has stage three cancer. Okay, this is the next step down. Well, what do I mean? Well, last week I said Pergamum faced false beliefs from the outside. If you guys were here, you should remember that. But they were facing all this pressure from their culture. There was continuous pressure to compromise in their faith. There was false teaching coming down on them, idolatry, immorality, all these things always go together. But there was all this pressure. And eventually, some people caved in, and the rest were silent. Okay, that was Pergamum. Well, the church at Thyatira also had people who had embraced the same things, false teaching, idolatry, immorality. But here's the big difference. It didn't happen because of pressure from the outside. It wasn't like, hey, believe in this, believe in this, do this. It wasn't pressure from the outside, but rather it was because of a false teacher that was spreading it from the inside. It's a huge difference. So the church at Pergamum had caved in to pressure from the outside. And in contrast, the church at Thyatira was deceived by a false teacher on the inside. And when you look at Jesus' letters to both churches and you compare them, what was happening at Thyatira was way more serious, far more serious. And why do I say that? Well, Thyatira was a much smaller city. It wasn't as important. It was far from the coast, way inland. It was a little south of Pergamum. It was originally a military town. It was established by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And over time, this little town grew into somewhat of a commercial center, but never that big. But it became a place where people would go to practice a trade and do some business there. And this is what made this town famous. But it was most known for its many guilds. A guild is kind of an old word, but it's kind of like labor unions today if you know what labor unions are. But these are groups where workers in a particular trade, I'm talking about like plumbers or electricians or carpenters, they come together and they form a group to help each other, protect each other, to try to get the government to support them, right? These are labor unions. Well, guilds were the same thing. So Thyatara was full of these guilds and they became known for it. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul met a woman in Philippi named Lydia. So if you look in Acts 16, 14, it says Lydia was from the city of Thyatara. Okay, this is the same city. And she was a seller of purple goods. So some scholars believe Lydia, maybe she was the president of one of these guilds. Maybe she was the leader. And here she is now living in a different city. She's from Thyatara, but now she's living in a different city doing all this business there, right? Maybe she was one of the leaders of this guild. So that's another thing Thyatara was known for is purple dye. That's why people would leave Thyatara to sell purple goods. Basically, they would take this purple dye made from this plant root growing in Thyatara, smash it up, turn it into dye, and then turn a lot of things purple, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff. I don't know, you know, statues and fabrics and I don't know, you name it. They turned things purple and people liked the color purple and they sold it. So why am I mentioning all this? The reason is because that's pretty much it. When you think about Thyatara, what is Thyatara known for? That's pretty much it. It was not a big city. It was not very important. It was not a major center for religion, culture, politics. And so what that means is the church there wasn't that important either. It wasn't very influential. It wasn't very big. And yet, don't miss this. Jesus wrote the longest letter to Thyatara. By far, this is the longest letter. All the other letters are just a few verses. This is very long compared to the other letters. So isn't that encouraging that Jesus does not minister to churches based on how big they are or how influential they are? 
It's not like Jesus looking at, okay, Saddlebag, I really watch you, but you know, these other little churches in Riverside, I kind of check in occasionally. No. Jesus ministers based on need. So he will spend more time helping a small, insignificant church if their needs are more urgent. And so this is what happened to Thyatara. Their needs were urgent. And again, why? Because unlike Pergamum, where there was a lot of pressure from the outside, right? Do this. Believe this. And some caved in. Thyatara, it was an inside job. Somebody had come into the church, was actually a leader in the church, maybe a small group leader. Maybe they even taught up front. And this teacher was deceiving them. Okay, this was way more serious. So Jesus wrote the longest letter to them, and he had a lot to say about deception. We can't get into everything here, but we're going to get hopefully a good idea of what Jesus says. So there are several things Jesus had to say about this deception that was in the church. And again, this is a personal letter to us as well. This is a letter to the churches in America. Again, the church in America, if it does nothing, goes from Pergamum to Thyatara. I believe that is the next step. And there are churches already today, they have already slid to that. It's gone from pressure from the outside, some are caving, to now there are people on the inside spreading false things and deceiving people. So what did Jesus say? Well, first, he talked about the hiddenness of deception. Okay, the hiddenness of deception. Look at verses 18 and 20. Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished simply means glowing because it was heated up. Glowing bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So here Jesus opens a letter like he does every letter by telling them who is sending this letter. Of course, it's always Jesus, but he has different descriptions of himself. And here he uses a very interesting title for himself, the Son of God, the Son of God. This is the first time we see this title in the book of Revelation. And by the way, this is the last time. You won't find it again. There's only one time Jesus calls himself the Son of God in this crazy book of Revelation. And it's in this letter to this insignificant little church. Again, Jesus doesn't measure the value of a church by its size or significance or influence. It's purely based on the need that they have. And he's saying, Thyatara, listen up. It's the Son of God talking to you. It's almost as if Jesus pulled out his highest title in this letter because things are getting really serious. You know growing up, if your mom and dad pulls out full names, you know things are serious, right? Joshua, Aiden, Shin, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Samantha, Aiden, Shin. I got to say your name too. Isaiah, Lucas, Shin. You guys are in trouble, right? You know you're in trouble if it's the full name. And you know you're in real trouble if I quote my own full name. Okay, it's over now. It's over now, right? But Jesus, he is quoting his full title here, Son of God. And then look at what he says about himself. Look at the description he uses. A few weeks ago, I said, pay attention to the descriptions that Jesus uses about himself. Okay, pay attention. These aren't just throwaway things. But they reveal how he's going to minister to every church. So what description did he use here? To the church at Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Where did we see that before? We've seen that before. Okay, that's from the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. Okay, they're, they're just coming up again at the top of each letter. And, and so what is this? Well, the burning eyes of fire is his omniscience. He sees everything. He knows everything because he sees everything. And then the burnished bronze is his uh, symbol of judgment upon sin. He's going to judge the sin in this church. But this is very important. He's saying, this is how I'm going to minister to you, Thyatara. And so in particular, I want to look at his eyes of fire. Okay, what Jesus is saying is, Thyatara, I see something in your church that you do not see. And what I see is deception that you have fallen for. And this is one of the first things that Jesus reveals about deception. He shows us that by nature, deception is hidden. Right? It's hidden. That's why he's saying, I see it. You don't see it because it's hidden, but I see it. I have eyes of fire. I see everything. By the way, that's true of every individual as well, so just kind of tuck that away. <laughs> but Jesus knows everything about you. Your heart is an open book to him. 
but so is the church. He sees everything. And so deception is not hidden to him, but to the rest of us, it is utterly hidden. See, deception, what is deception? It hides the truth, right? If you had a friend and this friend was going to do something very bad to you, one of the first things that friend is going to start doing is lie to you. That friend is going to start hiding the truth from you because they're deceiving you. They're going to do something bad to you. But here's the thing about deception. We already know that. But deception also hides itself. That's how deception works. It must hide itself because by very nature, that's what deception is. The moment is not hidden anymore. It's not deception, right? So deception hides the truth, but it also hides itself. Deception, uh, I got to say that word correctly because I'm saying say it a lot today. Deception never comes to you saying, I'm here. Deception, I'm here. Nobody ever says, hey, can you help me out? I'm deceived. Nobody ever says that. How many of you guys have ever heard somebody come to you and say that? Can you help me? I'm deceived right now. Nobody ever says that. Why? Because the people who are deceived don't know it. They never know it. And the reason why, again, is because the very nature of deception is it is hidden. It is hidden. So when you look at the Gospels, Jesus knew deception very well because he lived with a deceiver for three years. But nobody thought Judas was the one who had betrayed Jesus. But on the night before he went to the cross during the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, okay, nobody thought it was Judas. Okay, I don't know why in all these Jesus movies, Judas is always wearing the black coat. Right? He's in the corner with like dark circles under his eyes. I mean, that's dumb. Because in the Gospels, nobody thought Judas was the deceiver. Instead, everybody said, Lord, is it I? Is it me? Everybody said that. Well, except Judas. He didn't say it. Because <laughs> he knew, I, I am the deceiver. It's me. But everybody else like, is it me, Lord? Nobody thought it. That it was Judas. And again, why? Because a true deceiver, a true deceiver, by nature, is hidden. Okay, they come hiding. So the Christians at Thyatira did not think at all that they were being deceived. They did not think it. In fact, Jesus told them many other things that they did know. In verse 19, Jesus said, I know your works. And they're thinking, yeah, we know that too. We know our works. I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. And they're just walking around, oh, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, we know these things too. We know all these things. So that was very high praise on this church. In fact, this is actually the opposite of Ephesus. The greatest church in, in these letters is the Ephesian church. But the Ephesian church didn't have love for Christ. Thyatira did. The Ephesian church was slipping in their works. And that's why Jesus said, go back and do the first works you did at, you know, first. The Thyatira church, no. The latter works are even greater than your former works. So they were doing a good job. And they knew all this. So then why would a church like that think they were being deceived? They wouldn't think it. Okay, that's the point. They would never think it. No one who's being deceived thinks they are, especially when they're doing so well spiritually. The Bible says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Okay, what, what does that mean? Okay, what did Paul mean when he said that? He's saying, in particular, I want to warn the people who think they're strong. Right now, you're coming to church and your walk with God is it's okay. It's good. And there's nothing bad in my life. I'm not really sinning. And Paul is saying, I'm talking to you guys. You be careful. Because the ones who are doing poorly, they know that they're wide open. They know their walls were broken. Yeah, deception is probably coming in and out. I am probably deceived. But it's the people who think they're doing well. You be careful. Why is Paul saying that? Because that's the nature of deception. It comes hiding. Okay, it's, it's you guys. You're the ones who are going to be deceived. So be careful that you don't fall. So this is the first step in dealing with deception. You must know it's hidden. And if you know that, if you agree with this, then, then what do we do? We must admit there's a real possibility that I'm sitting here right now deceived. There's a real possibility. I think I'm doing pretty well. Maybe not as good as Thyatara, but I think I'm doing pretty decent. I think I'm walking with God. Well, the Bible says God is talking to you. You be careful. You might be sitting here right now deceived. There is something in your life that you might be deceived about. Okay, maybe it's something related to God's nature, your understanding of who God is. Maybe what the gospel is. Maybe it's a certain aspect of the gospel that you are just kind of subconsciously rejecting. Maybe it's an area of sin in your life. Maybe it's a relationship you're in that is absolutely destructive. 
Maybe it's a cultural issue. You think you're on the right side, and God is like, that is utterly the wrong side. I'm completely on the opposite side from you. But whatever it may be, you might be deceived in any one of these areas or some other area. And here's the point again. I keep emphasizing it, but you don't know it. Why? Because that's deception. And that's true for me too. That's the nature of deception is you just don't know it. You are utterly on the wrong side, and you are opposed to God, and we sit here thinking we are fine. So then what is our only hope? What well, goes back to this letter? What was the only hope for Thyatira? Promise church? It was Jesus' eyes of fire, looking straight through that church, going, I see everything. Okay, nothing's hidden from me. You guys are deceived. You have a false teacher standing in your pulpit, preaching false things to you. Hopefully that's not being said to Promise Church, but, but it's like, I see everything. And so the only hope we have is for the Son of God with eyes of fire to reveal deception to us. There's no other way we're going to know. Again, why? Because that's the nature of deception. You don't know. If you knew, you're not deceived. And so this is what Jesus continuously does through his word. He is continuously revealing deception because there's no other way we're going to know. So when Jesus was here on the earth, he repeatedly warned his followers about what? Deception. I mean, he mentions deception so often in his teaching on the end times. Bible scholars have concluded, you know what? Deception is the greatest sign of the end times. It's not balls of fire falling from heaven and like the temple being rebuilt and earthquakes happening. Yes, those things will happen. Wars. But by far, the greatest sign of the end times is deception will fill the earth. Why are Bible scholars concluding that? Because he talked about it that much. Here's one verse, Matthew 24, 24 through 25. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. How many of you guys know that the enemy can perform miracles too? So don't chase after miracles. Miracles can glorify God and do powerful things for God in his name, and yet they could utterly deceive you too. Many false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so that as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, the chosen of God. Even they can get fooled. And then he says, see, I've told you beforehand. Don't forget, I told you. And then he tells you again. And he tells you again. So Jesus' ministry was marked by warnings like that. So in our fight against deception, we must not only admit the possibility that, yeah, right now I could be deceived. I'm not saying walk around with this, like, doubt in your heart all the time. I'm not saying that. But just admit the possibility of that. You might not be all right. But it begins with that admission because deception by its very nature is hidden. But then you go beyond that and you need to begin to look to God's word and look to what Jesus is saying because he is constantly warning and calling out deception. And I'm always surprised that very few Christians do that. They have such strong stances on certain things, you know, regarding the Christian walk or something in the culture. They have just strong stances. And then when I ask them, oh, where did you get that from the word of God? And then they don't have an answer. So there's very surprising few Christians who actually look at Jesus' teachings to see if, am I deceived on this? Is this in line with what God is saying? So that's the first thing we see. Deception is hidden. But Jesus said more. He warned this church about the form of deception. There's a certain form it takes. It doesn't just come any which way. So look at verses 20 through 21. Jesus said, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. So some people believe she might have been a believer or at least a Christian in name because Jesus is giving her time to repent. Maybe this is a repent unto salvation. That's what I think it is. Maybe she's not a believer yet. But Jesus is giving her opportunity to repent. But she refuses she refuses to repent. So here, what do you see? You see the same three sins that were threatening the Pergamum church. The exact same. False teaching, idolatry, sexual immorality. And like I said last week, they always come together. And so I explained why last week, but let me give a quick refresher. But I call this the anatomy of compromise. But the same compromise was in the Thyatira church. But these three things always come together. We saw it come together in the Pergamum church. We saw it come together in Romans 1. Now we see it for the third time coming together. It is always false teaching leading to idolatry, leading to immorality. But why? Why are these three things always together? 
was because humanity on our own, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, we don't want God. We don't want God. We don't accept God. We don't like the things he has to say. And because of that, humanity on their own will always put up false things about God. They will create false teachings to remake God into their own image. A God that they can accept a little bit better. Get something more to their liking. And this is why false teaching is not just intellectual or academic. Okay, I mentioned this last week, but it is always personal. And every time I talk to somebody who is really going far into some kind of false teaching, when I dig deep enough, it is a very, very personal issue. It almost gets emotional. And I've been there. I've talked to people where it's kind of an emotional thing, right? It's a very personal thing. They don't like the God that they see in the Bible and is getting on some kind of case in their life. And so they want to remake God into their own image. And this is idolatry. So that false teaching leads to idolatry. People are worshiping literally a different God now. They still call him Jesus. They still call him the God of the Bible. But it's actually a different God. And now, once you have a different God, what do you have? You have freedom to do whatever you want. So-called freedom. I think one sister said that earlier. It's so-called freedom, right? Yes, so-called freedom. Not true freedom, but they believe they are now free to do whatever I want. I, I could just do whatever I want. I don't have this God who's going to judge me and condemn my sin and cast me to hell. I don't, I don't have a God like that, so I'm not held accountable. I can do whatever I want, and that is always the end game. That is always what they want. And so people want to be unaccountable for their actions. And this now leads into some form of sexual immorality, usually does, but it could be any kind of immorality. And so we already covered this last week, and I gave many examples of this. We see this literally happening day by day in the churches today in America. We see this literally playing out every day. This is the anatomy of compromise. Well, here's the same pattern again in Thyatira. The same pattern, except there's a dangerous twist. Okay, remember, again, everything you see in Pergamum, you're seeing in Thyatira, but it's the next step down. Cancer 2, stage 2, this is cancer stage 3. So what's that twist? Well, in Pergamum, again, the false teaching that led to idolatry, that led to immorality, was like the teaching of Balaam. That's what Jesus said. He sees all things. This is like Balaam's teaching. And who was Balaam? He was a false prophet on the outside of Israel. He was not a part of Israel. He was on the outside. And he was pressuring Israel. He was trying to make them compromise, and he failed the first time. He came back, did it the second time, and he was just kind of going after it, right, from the outside. He was not a part of Israel. But now the Thyatira church, same thing's happening, right? False teaching leading to idolatry and then immorality, and yet Jesus said this is different. This isn't like Balaam. This is like Jezebel. This is very important. So then who's Jezebel? Okay, why, why, why use a different name? Well, Jezebel is a very different figure from Balaam. Balaam was on the outside, a false prophet, not a part of Israel. Jezebel, in contrast, was an enemy of Israel from the inside. Can you see her story in First and Second Kings? But she was literally a foreign person who worshipped different gods, who married an Israelite king, King Ahab. And she lived inside the palace of Israel, and she literally sat on the throne of Israel as Israel's queen. So this is an inside job. And from that place on the inside, she began to kill all the true prophets of Israel. Elijah was one of them. He was running for his life. That's where the whole story of Elijah came from. And she led the entire nation into the worst forms of Canaanite idolatry. The worst. All kinds of crazy sexual immorality. In fact, this woman was so vile and so evil, the Bible says the very act of marrying her was one of the worst wicked things that Ahab did. You know you're marrying the wrong person. <laughs> when God says the very act of marrying that person is the worst thing you're going to do in life. Okay, that's the most wicked thing. Well, that was Ahab marrying Jezebel. And the church at Thyatira had a woman like Jezebel in their midst. Okay, it wasn't actually Jezebel because Jezebel was long gone. She died in the Old Testament in a terrible way under the judgment of God. Dogs ate her. But here now is another woman like Jezebel. And she was an insider. She was a teacher, a leader in the church. And just like Judas, no one knew. Again, please don't have these false images of who these people are, these deceivers. You don't imagine Jezebel, this Jezebel figure, 
it's kind of like Angelina Jolie in that movie. I haven't seen it, but I know she has like that weird costume uh, looking like the mistress of evil in that Disney movie. Don't picture that. Okay, that, that is not this figure. I'm picturing more like Betty White, okay? okay? Imagine Betty White sitting in the front row with her little notepad open and her big, fat, thick ESV study Bible. And she's from hell. <laughs> okay, I, I, I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I mean, this stuff is serious. And she is an instrument of the enemy. But here is this Betty White, Jezebel-type figure. And nothing against Betty White. She was a good woman. But she was a deceiver, this Jezebel figure. And this is happening in the churches today. You know, I remember hearing this testimony of a person who actually has a podcast. Uh, she's an author. Uh, she has a YouTube channel. You might have heard of her. Her name is Alyssa Childers. Um, I like her. But she talks a lot about apologetics and in particular progressive Christianity because she came out of that movement. But I remember one time she was sharing her testimony and she basically said she grew up in the Christian church. She was even a part of a Christian girl band. You know, praise God. But then later when she became a young adult, she went through a season of doubt, began to drift from her faith. She actually experienced some things that were very discouraging. And then she started deconstructing her faith. What that means is she started breaking her faith down and saying, questioning every part of it. And now that's not always wrong. Some people need to go through that. But for her, this was a very, very painful and difficult experience she went through. It probably usually is. But she was deconstructing her faith. She stopped going to church. But then by God's grace, she eventually started going back. And one day, she started attending this church. I think she was married with her husband. And the reason why she liked this church is because the church was very friendly, but in particular, the pastor's sermons were very engaging. They were very intellectually stimulating. And she's like, I wasn't used to that. Sermons were usually intellectually stimulating. But the, uh, this pastor was. And so she kept going to this church. And then one day, maybe the pastor noticed her, and then he asked her, hey, do you want to join this group? Kind of like a small group at his house, along with a few other people. And she said, yeah. So she and her husband went. And then one of the first meetings, she heard something that totally shocked her, unexpected. But the pastor in one of these small group meetings confessed to the group there, you know, I want to just be honest with you guys, and I'm exploring my own faith. I'm exploring my own faith. And then he mentioned a few of the essentials of the gospel, like the resurrection. I think he mentioned something else. And he's like, to be honest, I don't really believe in these things. <laughs> and she's like, you're my pastor. And so that was like a bomb that went off. Nobody expected it. Yeah, how could this clean-cut, intellectual, eloquent pastor, intellectually stimulating, how could he not even be a Christian? He doesn't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, how could that happen? Well, the reason why it can happen is because that's precisely what deception is. Right? That's exactly what the nature of deception is. Again, it's hidden from view. Deception never comes looking like deception. It never comes going, I'm here, deception. But it looks like a clean-cut, very smart pastor who speaks well. It always comes looking like something else. And so what am I saying? This was the Jezebel figure. This is exactly what the Thyatira church had. And it's very interesting here, but Jesus called the teaching of this Jezebel figure. Again, it's very similar to what happened with Pergamum and Balaam. Okay, the Balaam figure. So I'm not going to go through all that again. But Jezebel was doing very similar things. False teaching leading to idolatry and immorality. It was happening on the inside. But Jesus said something else about it that was very interesting. He called it the deep things of Satan. Look at verse 24. Okay, what is that? He's referring to the teaching of this woman. Maybe even the teaching of that pastor. That Alyssa Childers was going to. But these are the deep things of Satan? Okay, what, what, what does that mean? Well, possibly, some people believe this could be similar to the teachings of demons, the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Okay, maybe they're related. Paul said, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, which we live in right now, some will depart from the faith. Okay, they're going to be looking like Christian, but they leave. Okay, they're not Christian anymore, at least you know, truly Christian. Why? why? Why do they leave? Because they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. So there are other people who are insincere liars deceiving these people who leave, whose consciences are seared. So maybe this is what he's referring to, the deep things of Satan. Same thing as doctrine of demons. 
Now, I don't know exactly what these things are, but we can kind of get a sense of what they are. It is whatever comes looking like Christianity. It looks like the gospel. It looks like the true Jesus Christ, and yet it is something completely contrary to it. I think that's what it is. I mean, I don't know specifically the details, but that is what it is. You know, when I hear that phrase, the deep things of Satan, immediately I think of deep undercover. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm reminded of those Russian spies who go deep undercover here in the U.S. to try to get information and ultimately corrupt and destroy this country. But they go deep undercover. But that's what I think of. The deep things of Satan is anything where the enemy comes looking like an angel of light. And Paul says that straight up. The devil doesn't come with horn. He he comes like an angel of light preaching a so-called gospel. And yet it is utterly a deception. These are the deep things of Satan. It is deep undercover. And so this was happening, you guys. This was happening in the churches today. Again, many churches are kind of like right on that cusp. They're compromising from the pressure on the outside. They haven't fully gone all the way now to Thyatara where there is somebody standing up here preaching these things to them. But this is where things are headed. The Bible says so. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, okay, much later than when Paul lived, I'm talking about right now. He's talking about now. In the later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who are coming into them, posing as teachers, sharing all these things, whose consciences are seared. You know, late last year, I spoke about three different kinds of false teaching that is filling the earth today and is spilling into the church. And I don't see any, any you know, pullback. I mean, this is just in- going to increase. But you might be thinking, okay, well, wh- what are we talking about in particular? I mean, what are these deep things of Satan, this deception that's coming? Well, here are just a few. You can just maybe write them down or, or just put, tuck it away in your mind. But moralism, yeah, I don't think this is the biggest one, but this is still there. Mainly in the form of false religions. Okay, moralism. Have you guys ever talked to a Mormon? A Mormon, you can almost replace more men with moral because they are utterly moral. I had actually a, a friend in high school who was a Mormon. He was one of the most clean-cut guys I've ever met. Never saw a movie uh, higher than PG, never drank coffee. I don't even think he drank Coke. But the cl- cleanest, most clean-cut guy, and yet he was a part of a cult. Okay, so moralism, oftentimes in the, in the garb of farce, false religion. Another one is worldly wisdom. We're talking about things like secular humanism, scientific materialism, the physical is all we have, matter and energy is all there is. We're talking about worldly different philosophies. And then here's another big one, pagan spirituality. How many guys know that Europe right now is no longer a Christian? We already knew that. It's long since been a Christian continent, but now it is increasingly becoming dominated by Islam and also New Age, paganism. And I talked to Pastor Edward. He came and spoke a month ago. But I talked to him, and he's like, oh, yeah. I asked him, is that true? He's like, oh, yeah. Islam is everywhere, and paganism is everywhere. And here's where it touches our lives. America is only a few decades behind Europe. This is where America's headed. This is exactly where America's headed. I'm not so sure about the Islam portion, but I know for sure pagan spirituality is here. So these are some things to take note of. And all of these things are showing up inside the church. And if you were to ever go online, you would immediately see all kinds of examples of how churches have brought this stuff onto the inside. But you'll see entire list of churches that play secular songs in their worship services as part of their worship. There's even a very large church right here in the Inland Empire. I mean, I'm not about calling out any church by name. You can look this stuff on your own. Okay, I want to build up the church. I don't, want, I don't want to call out specific churches if I don't have to. Sometimes I will. But there's a church very nearby, a very large church, and they play secular songs. I think they were playing Pearl Jam or Taylor Swift during their worship services. I've literally seen dance routines on the stages of a church on a Sunday morning, and they're doing a Hindu dance routine. I mean, it looks Hindu with the multiple arms and the poses of these Hindu gods. It's very bizarre. It's like, why would you do that on a Sunday morning at church? But you see that literally coming into the church. And going back to now the teaching, okay, where do we see all these things coming into the church in the form of teaching and doctrine? I believe it's progressive Christianity. Okay, that's how we're seeing it. 
But Michael Kruger, he's a professor at a seminary, but he says these are the hallmarks of progressive Christianity. But there are three he identifies. Progressive Christianity has a low view of Christ. It has a very low view of Christ. Some people are on the verge of denying the deity of Christ. Some toy with that. Others have outright denied the deity of Christ. Jesus is not God. But rather, we, we follow him. Why? Because he is the highest example we have. So they have a very low view of Christ. Number two, progressive Christianity is focused on moralism, not salvation. All that stuff about God's wrath and judgment and heaven and hell, we deny all of that, but we still call ourselves Christian. Why? Because it has such good morals. It's beautiful. Love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. And so they follow the moralism. Never mind that that's just the flower on the top, but they just chop the roots out. Right? Where, where, where does all that moralism or the good moral living come from? It's coming from the roots of the gospel. But this is another hallmark of progressive Christianity, just moralism. Remember what I said? Things on the outside are now in the church being taught. Number three, progressive Christianity also downplays our fallenness. We're not sinners. No, we can't accept that. But rather, we just have mistakes. I don't know if they actually use that language, but that is basically what they're saying. And our job is to do our best to try to be good people. And so now, are they even Christian? I mean, that could be any religion. Here's a more general definition of progressive Christianity. But it's just this kind of amalgam, this kind of hodgepodge of all this like, stuff out in the culture that has now come into the church. It's an inside job. But progressive Christianity represents a postmodern, and this was not written by a Christian. This is a general definition written by a non-Christian website. But progressive Christianity represents a postmodern theological approach and is not necessarily synonymous with progressive politics. So don't confuse the two. It developed out of the liberal Christianity of the modern era, which was rooted in enlightenment thinking. If you don't understand all those words, don't worry. You can look them up. I struggle to understand all of that too. But you clearly see all these things out there are now in the church being preached. And so what does Jesus say? This is a deception. He, this is a deception. And in fact, he says, this is like a Jezebel. He, Jezebel literally sat on the throne in the palace of Israel, spreading all of this throughout the entire land. And God's worst judgment was upon it. And this brings us to our third point, the judgment of deception. He, God will judge it. Jesus brought judgment upon this deception and in fact, this is not only the longest letter, but it is actually one of the harshest letters. Okay, the judgment here that Jesus declares is very harsh, almost shocking, actually. But he starts with that picture of his feet glowing like bronze metal heated in the furnace. Again, that is a picture of judgment. In ancient times, the king's feet represented judgment. That's why his throne was elevated high. Any person who was going to be judged by the king would come in and bow down. Why? Because that person is under the feet of the king. It's that picture of judgment. You're under my feet. It's the same picture here. Jesus' feet is over the church. And by the way, Jesus' feet, they're not just normal. They're glowing red hot. <laughs> you don't want him stepping on us. You don't want him stepping. But this is what he does. He comes and he steps and stomps out sin. This is what he's saying. I'm ready to judge this sin. With my red hot glowing feet of judgment, I will stomp out this sin. And how will he do it? He, he gets very clear. Revelation 22 through 25. Behold, I will throw this Jezebel figure onto a sick bed. She's not going to just catch COVID on her own, randomly become sick. No, Jesus is saying, I will make her sick. In fact, so sick, she will be on a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. So you like this teaching? You like this person? You're hooking up with her. You will be in tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike, this is shocking, I will strike her children dead. And here Jesus is not saying biological children, but these are spiritual children. These are people who have basically said, yes, I like that. That's my teaching. I believe that. These are her followers. I will strike them dead. I don't enjoy reading this. I mean, please, don't, don't mistake in my voice, you know, me being passionate that I enjoy this. I don't want this upon anyone in the church. But you can't ignore this, brothers and sisters, and this is precisely the issue. There are people who are teaching from the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, and they completely ignore this, or they completely misinterpret these words. Judgment doesn't mean judgment. Death doesn't mean death. And everything is redefined. Now, I don't 
I don't, you know, claim to know precisely what this looked like in the first century, but it doesn't look good. This is judgment upon sin. And in fact, this is one of the harshest judgments that Jesus declared. But, and Jesus is so fair, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, because there are a lot of people in the church who didn't believe it. They're like, what is this? It's kind of weird. But to those who don't hold to this teaching and have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay any other burden. Okay, just hold fast to the works that I've done, right, until I come back. Just hold fast what you have until I come. So this is Jesus' judgment on the false teacher and all her followers. Okay, this is what children means. But Jesus' judgment on them was death. Okay, death. And, and some of you guys might be sitting here thinking, okay, this is, this is the stuff I don't like about the Bible. Like, like why so severe? Okay, well, why, why does Jesus declare death on anybody? He's about life, right? He's about love, forgiveness, life. Why is he declaring death? And by the way, don't make, don't make this mistake. D.A. Carson does a great job explaining this. But it's not like Old Testament God, bad, killing people, don't like him. New Testament God, good, grace, love. Carson's like, no, you don't know your Bible. Everything in the Old Testament, because God is a God of judgment and death, punishment in the Old Testament, but he's also grace and compassion and mercy. It says that in the Old Testament. But everything he is in the Old Testament, that's kind of dim, is much more in the New Testament to an nth degree, brighter and hotter and clearer in the New Testament. So what does that mean? His love and grace and mercy is so much greater in the New Testament, but his judgment and punishment and upon sin is so much greater too. And we just choose to ignore it because we're so blinded by his grace and love in the New Testament. And Carson's like, no, you're not seeing the whole thing. The verses in the New Testament are scarier than the Old Testament. They're scarier. His judgment is more severe. But then his grace and love is also greater. So don't make that mistake. This is what we see here. His judgment is so severe. Why? Like, why? Well, the simple answer is, is because the danger that the church was facing because of this false teacher was also death. So Jesus was matching death with death. Because of this false teaching, there will be spiritual death, which will lead to eternal death, damnation, condemnation. And so I am going to match it with my judgment of death. I know there's a lot of death being spoken here, but that is what Jesus is saying. He is matching death with death. That's why it's so severe. You know, I remember back when I was in college, I read this in a book. It was on spiritual conflict. And I remember this image just got burned into my mind. I was like reading this going, oh, okay. But supposedly, I don't know if this is true or not, but this author wrote on it. But in the Arctic, one way that they, uh, these trappers, the way they catch a wolf is very ingenious. But they'll take a very, very sharp blade a knife, a long knife. They'll dip it in caribou blood or some animal's blood, and then they freeze it until it's rock hard, like a popsicle, a blood popsicle, and they'll stick it right into the snow sticking up. And the wolf will smell the blood, and they'll, sure enough, come late at night and begin licking that blood because that's what wolves want. And they begin to lick the blood and lick the blood and lick the blood, and as they do, their warm tongue begins to what? Melt the blood. Until soon, the knife gets revealed. But the wolf doesn't notice the knife. Why? Because as, they, as it keeps licking the, the knife, now the tongue is being slashed repeatedly, and its own blood is being mixed and covering the knife. Its own blood. And yet, even with that, supposedly, the wolf will not stop because that pull for that blood is so strong, the smell and the taste are so strong, it will continue to lick that knife until it's completely cut up, and eventually it becomes so weak they can catch it very easily. Or it actually sometimes kills the wolf. And so this is precisely what Jesus is saying. Okay, you think this is just Betty White, Jezebel in the front, saying some things that are a little funny? He's like, this is death. And I'm going to come to you, Thyatara, and I'm going to match it with death. Unless you repent, you're going to be on a sick bed of death. And your children, your followers will be, will be dead. And so this is precisely how it is, brothers and sisters. And so this is the reality of the times that we live in. But this will continuously happen in the church of Jesus Christ. Is people will continuously come in to deceive, whether they're sent on their own fancy, their own imagination, or directly sent by somebody else. But they will come to deceive. And some will actually even deceive from up here. And once it gets lodged, it is incredibly hard to unlodge, to take it out. In fact, some churches, the only hope is to just shut it down. 
And we know that because in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites, these were Canaanites who came and they deceived the Israelites. Joshua was a spiritual man. He had a lot of insight into what God was doing, and yet even he got deceived. They came dressed like they came from far away with rips in their clothes and moldy bread. And, and they're like, oh, we're not from here. We're from far away. We just heard about you guys. Can we just come and live amongst you and you protect us? And they got deceived. And next thing we hear, they are rooted in the land for generations. And for the rest of the Old Testament, they pop up here and there, and they are causing problem after problem. See, it's very hard to root out once they're rooted. It's very hard. And so, again, this is why Jesus is so severe. He is so severe. Again, the God of love. The reason he's loving or severe is because he's loving. Okay, don't, don't be fooled by that. The reason why he's so severe is because he's loving. If he wasn't severe, he's not loving. It'd be like somebody coming against my children. I'm like, oh, hey, can you just kind of stop that? Right? Oh, can you just, hey, let's just come and play over here. I was like, I'm going to tackle that guy, right? I'm going to just knock him to the ground. I'm going to be severe if somebody comes against my children. That is Jesus. He is severe. So that is his judgment. And then we're going to close with this. The victory over deception. Okay, verse 25 through 28. Only hold fast what you have until I come, the one who conquers and he who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here, we're not going to go into every imagery there. There's a lot of stuff that we're not clear on. Morning star, what is that? Maybe it's Jesus himself. Okay, what is the rod that will rule over nations? It's a reference to Psalm 2, most likely. But, but it's a very beautiful picture here of how now the person that is being suppressed, oppressed by deception, Jesus is saying, but if you hold on to me, you're going to be on top, and you're going to be ruling with me. And you're going to know justice, and you're going to know righteousness. You're going to be ruling with me. And I love this, but right here, a portion of it, he's quoting Psalm 2. This is important, brothers and sisters, listen. But he literally turns to the word of God and reaffirms a promise from the word of God. When he's declaring victory over deception, he's pointing to the word of God. And this is what I believe he's saying. The victory over deception is literally found in the promises of the word of God. I believe that's what he's saying. Okay, I'm going to promise you victory over deception if you, if you hold on to me. And then he says it's going to be found literally in the promises of the word of God. Okay, I want you to look at the promises. He's saying fill your minds with these promises. That's how you're going to overcome deception. And so ultimately, why is every promise in Scripture a yes and amen? Okay, well, why can we believe in these things? It's because of the gospel, because Jesus died and rose again, and now he's in heaven, and every promise is ours. So now Jesus is pointing to these promises. You want to overcome? Fill your minds with these promises. Okay, that's how your mind is going to overcome deception. You know, I remember hearing these words at a conference one time, very memorable. But the speaker was saying, if you want to win the battle of the mind... The very first step, and I remember this, the very first step is stop trusting everything you think. Okay, stop trusting everything you think. Just because you thought something doesn't mean it's right. Even if you've reflected on it, even if you've like looked at all the issues and read a few blogs, and was like, okay, here's my conclusion, don't trust it. You want to win the battle of your mind? Always question what you think. Again, why? Because deception, you don't know it. That's the nature of it. It's hidden. It could be something you've thought about, reflected, discussed, and it could be utterly wrong. Okay, how many of you guys know that some of the smartest people in the world who have reflected deeply on things for many, many years have come to a complete wrong conclusion? Okay, there's a name for people like that, professors. I'm just kidding. No, not really, <laughs> but professors. I'm surprised at how utterly like, bizarre their conclusions are. And You've studied this for 30 years? And you're a teacher of these things? And so this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to win the battle of deception, and it starts right here in the mind. In fact, it's all in the mind. Then fill your mind with the gospel promises okay, that are true. I remember when I was young, I went to this camp, and we were kind of playing in the river, the shallow part. And they all gave us these floaties, right? You know, those big square floaties with the straps. And you hug onto them. 
And at one point, when I was just kind of in the shallow water, we were all playing around, I think there was like a little bit of a pool. It, you, know, you know how you get sucked, and it's like, oh, you're like clutching to that thing, right? Well, that's the image I get, is are you holding tight to the gospel and to the word of God? Right? Are you clutching to that thing as, your life, as if your life depends on it? In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, those who hold fast what you have until I come, verse 25. Okay, well, what do you have? You have the gospel. You know the whole story of how can you identify counterfeit by studying the real thing. I heard that the best chefs in the world, I like watching cooking shows occasionally. I don't cook at all. <laughs> but I heard some of the best chefs in the world, they can immediately just smell that something's off. Why? Because they have been around the right thing so much. Okay, the food that's cooked properly. So they just know right away, oh, this smells funny. Are you guys like that? Are you guys like that with false teaching? This smells funny. I've been around the right, the truth so much. It just smells funny. Okay, I can't write an essay on it. I can't explain it to anybody. It just smells funny. Are you guys like that? Or, oh, bring it. I love it because you make me feel good. You tell me things I love to hear. So this is what Jesus promises. You will have victory. Hold fast to what you already have. Fill your minds. Stop trusting everything you think. He admit you could be deceived right now. You could be sitting here having utterly wrong views on important things that God is completely opposed to. Confess that. I do as well. Even as a pastor, I could be utterly wrong on things, certain things. How do I know? Because I look at scripture. So with that, let's just come before the Lord. But these letters have been fairly heavy the last few weeks. But let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, Father. We just worship you. We give you all the glory. It's because you love us that you warn us. If you did not love us, you would not care. You would not care if we believed false things, if we were utterly deceived. But because you love us, you warn us. And not just once, but repeatedly, again and again. Do not be deceived. So Lord God, maybe before anything else, we just want to confess and admit, yes, that is very possible. I could be deceived. Especially if I think I'm standing, if I think I'm strong right now, I'm good. God's saying, I'm talking to you. You be careful, lest you be deceived and fall. You be careful. So God, thank you so much, Lord. You love us. Thank you for your word. And I pray and ask that you would just continue to drive it deep into our hearts and help, it to, help us to understand the deeper things, not of Satan, but of God, of Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord, and we're just going to spend a brief moment in prayer. But you can just make that confession to God. You can ask for his protection. You can ask him right now, fill my mind with your gospel promises. Fill my mind with your promises. last days, Jesus said repeatedly, many will come in my name, pretending to be Christian. That's what he's saying. Many will come pretending to be Christian, spreading false things, deceiving people.
tell me funny stories. I want that doctor to tell me straight up. Give me the truth so that I can live, right? I mean, is this hard to understand? This is basic Christianity, that Jesus cares about the truth. Why? So that we may live. So stop chasing after things that just make you feel good on the inside. Jesus will make you feel good, but that is not the sum total of your walk with God. But seek the truth. Amen? Seek the truth. And I can't imagine a time where this is more important than right now, in the last days, when deception is filling the earth. Many will come in my name, pretending to be Christian, and they're going to lead people astray. Liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, what does that mean? They're lying left and right, and they don't even know. Okay, it doesn't even affect them. That's what it means. Their consciences are seared. They are, they are unaffected by it. It's like they're breathing. Well, what, what do you mean lying? This is, this is what I believe. This is what I always say. deny the word of God, brothers and sisters. You can't deny the word of God. It knows us better than you know yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We just come before you, Father, and we just worship you. We thank you, Father. Father, please protect this church. Protect all the churches, God. I don't, I don't want any church to be misled. Father, please, we hold to you, and we don't know everything. There are more things I don't know than know. But I do know gospel is because you have made it so clear in scripture that you died for my sins according to scripture and you rose again from the dead bodily physically according to scripture and then you ascended up to heaven and you poured out your spirit and gave birth to the church and now this is where we live our lives and God we know the true gospel help us to hold on to that like that floaty our life depends on it Jesus. Thank you, Father. Let's rise for final worship. Thank you, Lord Jesus.